Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 14th, 2014, and this is episode 1444 of the Survival Podcast. It's Tuesday. Generally, I do a listener feedback show on Mondays. Monday didn't happen because I was in West Virginia. And I'll tell you a little bit about that trip today. It was a great event. I've got some cool stuff for you from that event, actually, today. And a bunch of other stuff. So Tuesday, I usually do a standalone show. I'm tired. I'll tell you why when I tell you about a little bit about my trip home. Uh, but I'm tired, and I was gone from Wednesday till uh, Monday. And that means I have about a kabillion emails to follow up with after filtering out all the crap that I didn't have to answer. I uh, still got a bunch to do. It's uh, it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, and I'm just getting started recording now. So I'm going to do a Tuesday chat with Jack's show and try to keep it to about an hour today. It's going to be cool. I think you'll enjoy it. we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. I'm going to play a little music from Andrew McKnight, who sang at the event, just a little piece of it. Tell you how you can get that whole song for free and listen to all of his music if you want to. And buy it. I'm going to tell you, there also, I'm going to be getting you guys in the MSP a discount. I really dig this guy. His music is amazing. More about that in a bit. We're going to talk about the Ebola scare for just a little bit today. I have an analogy that might put some of you guys at ease because, yes, a nurse who took care of a guy that was dying and bleeding out of his body uh, got Ebola despite safety precautions, and it looks like her boyfriend might, keyword might, have Ebola too right now. I'm sure Alex Jones today will be going, it's everywhere, man, it's coming to get you. Ah! Right, but it's it's really not, and I'll try to put you at ease a little bit with that. Uh, I'll talk about my upcoming trip to Wisconsin uh, to see Mark Shepard in, in ways that maybe somebody in this community might be helpful to me during that trip. I've had a shift in plans uh, because of an event uh, that really is much more tragic for somebody else than for me. And some other cool stuff that I'll talk to you about, including the fact that we do t- still have two seats left for the TSP event in November. That's going to be November um, 6, 7, and 8, with students able to show up on the 5th and go home on the 9th. Uh, it's going to be a really great event, maybe one of the best ones we've ever done from a food standpoint. And uh, they're always fun, and uh, I'd like to see you here if you have the opportunity to attend. So I'll let you know a little bit more about what's going on there. And I get just other random stuff around the homestead to talk about today. It's fall. It's beautiful. It's a good day. Before I do all that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal. Safe Castle Royal is the original survival podcast sponsor. When there was no sponsor, there was Safe Castle. Waiting in line before there was a line. That was five and a half years ago now. It'll be either six year this January of supporting this show. Amazing company. Everything you could want for your prepping needs, you'll find it at safecastle.com. Check them out today. And remember, they have an awesome product. It's called their Discount Membership Program. It's a lifetime purchase, one time, $49. Discounts on everything they sell. But if you're part of my MSB, you get that for free, which basically pays for your first month of member support, or your first year, I'm sorry, of member support brigade service. Um, that's just a great sponsor to have. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants, the company that is the linchpin in helping you complete the triangle of gun operator efficiency. So you got a gun, you got no ammo, you have an expensive club. You have ammo, you have no gun, you have things you can throw at people, I guess. It won't do much good. So you can buy the gun and you can buy the ammo. You can purchase quality there. 
And when you purchase it, you don't ever have to do anything except put one inside the other, and that piece is complete. The guns need to be maintained. Ammo needs to be replaced. I get it. But in the end, what I'm telling you is both of those are commodities you can buy with money. Now, you can spend money for good professional training, but you got to put stuff into it and you got to practice. you got to get the quality training and you have to participate in it because you are the linchpin. Frank Sharp and his cadre of instructors will help you do just that. Get up there, get the professional training, and at Frank's, you're not just going to get trained. You're going to get trained how to train yourself after you leave. Firearms training has to be ongoing. It's like muscles. I don't care. If when you were, you know, in, in college working out in the football team, you could best press, bench press 400 pounds. If you haven't been lifting weights for the last 20 years, you probably can't anymore. Just as the muscles atrophy when not worked on, the skills, the muscle memory, etc. Of, of proper firearms training atrophies over time if not practiced. Continue to update your training. Get it from pros like Frank at Fortress Defense.com. Next up today, let's talk about the Bob Wells plan of the week. I had a, Hiatus from the plan of the week last week just due to time crunches and letting it slip. So today we will get back on that pathway. Every week, one day a week, I bring you the plan of the week from Bob Wells. Because a lot of you guys like to learn about cool plants and what can you grow in your area, especially perennials, uh, perennial edibles. In this case, I have both of those things in one for you. The Isai Hardy Kiwi. And that's, I don't know if I'm even saying it right. I-S-S-A-I. So it could be Isaia or Isa. I'm not sure, but the Asa Hardy Kiwi adaptable from zones 5 to zones 9, and some people even say that it's cold hardy to zone 4. Uh, those of us in the permaculture world know that taking something from zone 5 to zone 4 is not that hard if we do things like solar catchment, etc. Uh, this plant will bear long, sweet fruit. It does not require a pollinator, which most kiwis require, a male and a female, but it will produce larger and more fruit if you plant it with a meteor cold hardy kiwi. Uh, if you live above a zone with a shorter growing season, this can be grown in a container. I don't think you'll ever get the yields that you would planted in the ground because the vine will get quite large over time. Kiwi vines can often produce a hundred pounds or more per vine, uh, once established, mature and bearing. Uh, I've actually seen a kiwi vine in Massachusetts of another cold hardy variety. Uh, that was probably producing close to a ton of kiwi from one vine up onto a giant tree in one of Jeff Lawton's videos. Uh, but these, the, both the meteor and the uh, isai have the ability to be self-fertile, which means they can produce without another plant. But when you put them together, you get better yields and larger fruit, so you might want to consider both of them. Both of them. You can learn more about these plants at Bob Wells Nursery. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes and uh, the Planet of the Week summary in the show notes as well. Uh, so with that knocked out, let us now remind you that the way that this show stays on the air is through the listeners or member support brigade. And uh, I'd like you to consider joining if you're not already a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members for more information on how you can become a member of our support brigade. And you can support the show for about two dimes an episode. You'll get a lot of really great discounts, and it's awesome. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like a paramedic, firefighter, or an EMT, active duty or prior service, if you email me with service discount in the subject line before you join, uh, I will get back to you with a discount code to save even more money. If you've already joined, cancel your automatic renewal. Get with me at renewal time. It's very difficult to convert the account over once you've joined. You guys are supposed to be procedural. Procedurals email Jack before 
not after you join to get the discount code. That's just a thank you for the service that you provide. Now let's take a look at today's history segment. The year is 1444 because the episode is 1444. Alex Shrugged has two stories for us on TSP Wiki about this time. One is the Old Zurich War, and two is the Lagos Slave Market. I'm going to read the Lagos Slave Market because I think it has a lot to teach us. Uh, the other one's good, too. You can find them at tspwiki.com with a link in the show notes, of course, as always in this episode. Because of an agricultural labor, labor shortage, trading, slave trading has started up again. Portuguese caravals, small coastal slips, ships, have been bringing slaves back from Africa and putting their captives to work in the fields. Now they have an excess of 275 slaves, and they're brought to Lagos. The Mercado de Escarvos is Portugal's first, Portugal's first slave market. The city of Largos will make its name in the slave trade, but once goods and spices become major imports in Lisbon, Lagos, it's Lagos, not Largos, by the way, Lagos will shrink in importance. The slave market in Lagos still stands as a museum. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us, the Black Death caused a severe labor shortage that will not be felt until the 1400s. With labor prices so high, it made importation of slaves from Africa economical. The Carvel sailing vessel had a capacity of 20, which included the sailors, so one can guess there was very little room for the slaves. The fact that these ships were used to move slaves tells you how important cheap labor was, and thus cheap goods was to them. In the modern day, this is a primary reason why businesses in the U.S. look the other way when hiring illegal aliens. The difference in labor cost is significant. Once the U.S. border is secured, may I live long enough to see it, one can expect the cost of goods and services to rise sharply, along with an increase in automation in certain industries such as farms, restaurants that hired illegal aliens. I actually have a lot to say on this one, but I'm going to keep it brief because if you can hear, as usual when I travel, I have a strained voice to deal with. Um, the first thing is, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe there'll be a sharp rise in the cost of goods and services. I think that's always been an excuse to not do the right thing with human beings. Uh, because that was an argument used by the South in the war between the states, a.k.a. the Civil War in the United States. And no, the price of cotton and other agricultural goods in the South did not skyrocket. It did not explode, and people did not go broke because of that. I know that's not what Alex means, but yet... It is the same story told again that we can't possibly can't possibly get rid of illegal aliens. No one will be able to afford to have their grass cut anymore or whatever. In spite of government's best attempt to make it not happen, markets always correct. People always balance out the equation. It's actually the interference that makes that very, very difficult. The other thing I want to point out is the obvious glaring thing to everyone that's tired absolutely sick and tired of being told that we're evil if we're white Americans, especially white American males. Because it's all our fault. Everything's the white man's fault. The white man did this. The white man did this. In this case, the Portuguese did it. Okay? In 1444, and there wouldn't have been a slave trade in the United States of America, originally the 13 colonies, if it weren't for the European slave trade, that brought it here when it colonized this place and screwed over the native people that were here. Okay? So this is a perfect example of revisionist history and selective memory. And Europeans of today are still looking down their long-ass noses at Americans across the pond as being the place where slavery was. Well, it started in your Actually, it started in Africa amongst their own tribes, uh, the modern slave trade actually did. There's been slavery with us 
as long as there's been one man strong enough to put chains upon another. Well, that's just the reality. I want to point something out I've said in the past that I, I, I think bears repeating again. There's more types of slavery out there than what we think of as conventional slavery. Many people today are slaves to the government and to other individuals throughout the world who control them, and they don't even know it. And it's all under the auspices of sharing and spreading the wealth and all this other crap. Here's the statement that I've said before that bears repeating again today. Sharing can only occur between equals. There is no such thing as sharing between people when one side is stronger and controlling the sharing. It then becomes theft and extortion. My take by Jack Spearco. Let's get in to the main topic of today's show. So I went to the Perma Ethos Fall Festival, met a lot of really great people that have been supporting the work of Perma Ethos, not just uh, people that paid to come as students, but woofers that were there, etc., uh, volunteer workers. Patrick Roman came and did a knife-keeping class. Michael Jordan came and did an amazing class on beekeeping. The only way I can describe the students during Michael's presentation was entranced. This guy has such a passion for what he does. He just The students were just completely enveloped in what he was doing. He went over his presentation time by like an hour. We just let it go and made everything else work because he was that good. It was great. The highlight for me, though, was the concert on Saturday night by Andrew McKnight. Uh, Andrew's an amazing guy. He plays in a, uh, a band called Beyond Borders with another gentleman who was a former member of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Uh, and he also makes his living just as an, an independent artist. And I, I, here's what I dig about Andrew, right? So I had a talk with him the next day, and because uh, he stayed the night that night. And I talked to him about how I run TSP and how you know how I run my revenue model and how that you know translates. I'm a marketer, and you got a guy trying to make a living. And I was totally sold on just his music and his his storytelling ability at this time. And I'm wondering where I could help him. And he he said, you know, in, people think we're independent. We're not. We're highly dependent. Uh, we're independent of a record label in my you know his case, or in my case of a, a, a radio station. But we're dependent on the people that love what we do and want to support it. It's kind of dutious, and he's really, really a great guy. What got me about his music is, is it tells stories, and it's really centric around the West Virginia. It, there's some of it travels with you. We, we, we experienced some travel during this time as he picked up a really cool old Indian pine flute and played some music and took us to the West, and so there is some movement with it. But most of the music is centric on West Virginia. And a lot of it is centric on what's happened in West Virginia due to coal mining and mountaintop removal and things like that. As you might imagine, um, and what I told Andrew was, and I told the whole audience this when I just wanted to congratulate him and thank him for doing such a great job for us, that there's uh, you know another musician I love is Jimmy Buffett. Totally different kind of guy, but he has a song called Son of a Son of a Sailor. And Andrew also had amazing music about soldiers as well in the military and all the way back to you know uh, civil war days and things like that and one of the great things he said in one of his songs is no one wins at war you know and that that really made me knew i had the right guy to be talking to because there's people that sing songs of tribute to the troops but we shouldn't be glorifying war and that brought that down so when i went up to talk about it one of the things i said is you know jimmy has this song son of a son of a sailor 
personally, your music hits me because I am the son of a son of a coal miner. And I'm also the son of a son of a soldier. And three generations of, you know, both. I didn't spend much time in the coal mine, but I actually did, for a time, do some work with my dad at a coal mine, and at least understand the work. And when we look at West Virginia from Pennsylvania, and we see what's happening to it today, we're sad for West Virginia, but it's what we expected because it just happened in Pennsylvania first. More on that in a bit, but this song called Made by Hand, I'm going to play part of it to you. I'll tell you where you can get more of his music and get this song for free download if you want to um, and hear the whole thing on his website when I come back. And I'll tell you more about my thoughts on it. But before I play this, I want to say that this is kind of folksy country music telling a story with a little bit of a bluegrass sound. Music is subjective. I don't like punk rock. Okay? Just don't. I like rock. Don't like punk rock. I know members of this audience that love punk rock. And that's just a subjective thing. So if folksy, bluegrassy, country-ish music is not your thing, I understand that. But do me a favor and listen to the story and the words here. And if country and bluegrassy, folksy, storytelling music is your thing, you're in for a real treat. Here we go. Andrew McKnight and the song Made by Hand. I'm going to play about a third of it, and I'll come back and give you some thoughts and tell you where you can get the rest of it and tell you why this song is so special to me now that I know that it exists. Okay, I mean, I think anybody that likes that style of music anyway can sit there and enjoy that and get something out of it the first time through. But, you know, I remember when I was in school and literature classes in high school, and I had some 
good teachers in that that realm. I know I'm not the biggest fan of organized education anymore, and there's reasons for that, but I had some good teachers. And I always thought poetry was just kind of lame as a kid. Most teenagers do. But when we started dissecting poems and actually understanding them, I found them to be very intriguing and very interesting and uh, realizing that one could say more with less. And um, good poetry, you can read it through and go, that's nice, I like that. But you don't really understand it unless you dissect it a little bit. And then there's so much more to it. It's like peeling layers. And that's talent. And that's what this song is. I want to I want to read you something here and I want to tell you what you don't know if you don't know the story behind the story, but what is obvious to those of us who do that have grown up in a coal town. So the, the, I'll just read the, the whole piece of what I played to you a little bit here. Granddad was a union man, worked deep beneath the ground, said a prayer in the morning and again to see the sun go down. Day from night by lantern light to earn enough to eat. By Saturday, the moon, moon on the mountainside, the fill moved their feet. So there you're just hearing the story of what it was like in that day and age when men went beneath the ground to mine. And it was hard work. And the companies came in and said, but there'll be jobs. And yeah, there were jobs. And they did earn enough to eat. And they were grateful for the work. And they entertained themselves by having the family together. That's very heavy in Appalachia. That's a very important thing. The fiddle moved their feet on the mountainside at night on Saturday night. So they worked hard, but they enjoyed themselves and they had family. So verse two is, went to the mines at 14. Think about that. Took a wife at 21, raised five kids in the holler like his daddy done. So not only did this man go to work very, very young at a very, very hard job, take a wife at a very young age, but he raised five kids. He was able to raise the five kids. And again, deep beneath the ground. This is something that doesn't even get directly said here in this song. You have to know to understand what he's talking about as he goes into the next part. The company cut costs and corners everywhere it could. Still, every Sunday they gave thanks they had, they had, that they had it good. So there was still a job. They still had it good. This is where it starts to change. And there's a real interesting story that continues on past the first chorus. I'm going to leave it to you to go listen to that for yourself, though. But the chorus is, I know that times are changing. They say progress is good. But do we honor honest work like my granddaddy would? The eagle soaring high, would he recognize this land built upon the sturdy backs of those who made by hand? Now, if you don't know the difference between mining underneath the ground and mining from above the ground, and you don't understand how that works, it's almost impossible to really understand what just was said there. So when you, when you, when you mine coal with what's called shaft mining, other than a couple holes here and there in places people go underground, the surface remains the same. There is some issues with runoff and pollution and sulfation, but overall it's the cleanest way to mine coal that is possible. Everything that's not coal, most of it anyway, stays under the ground and nothing happens to the surface. But it requires a labor-intensive model. And it means that men have to get 
in the ground, go down there and get the coal and bring it out. And you need a lot of people to do it. In the early 1900s in Pennsylvania, that was the story the coal companies used to get control of everything and to wrest away control from the small miners because there were still small miners. Molly Maguire's are back in the 1800s, but there was still, even despite what the Reading Company did, there was still holdouts, small miners at small leases all over the place, small operations. And what the coal company said is, if you work with us, we can do so much more. We can bring in additional technology. We can pay you good wages. We can give you benefits. You know, we are okay with the union. Let's let's do this the right way. You know, there'll be less injuries, less deaths. And they took over. They took over everything. And as soon as they did, the jobs started to go away faster and faster. And they came in and they strip mined. And as they came into the warriors, they said, we need the coal, we have to do it. And they destroyed the land. They destroyed the land by digging holes in it. And I don't think, if you've never seen a stripping hole, you don't understand what I mean by a hole. It looks like a catastrophic, earth-ending meteor or comet impact. Some of these holes are a mile across or more. Ripped, gouged, damaged land. You dig the hole as deep as you possibly can until you run out of coal, and then you leave the hole behind. Now, when you do this, you get more than just coal. You don't get just straight coal when you dig it out. You get coal in this stuff called slush. So you just dump the slush somewhere off to the side of the hole, and you create things that we called, as I grew up, the Black Desert. And I could take you to one that I hunted around, um, the, the, you know, around it because there was nothing on it at all. Uh, the mining that was done there had been done during the war years, and uh, it was several feet deep of this black, disgusting coal slush that's of no use to anybody or anything. And uh, in that slush is a massive amount of sulfur, And every time it rains, sulfur washes out of those black deserts along with other black polluting crap and ends up in the groundwater. And then one day you go look at a creek that your grandfather said used to have trout in it, and it's orange and slimy, and there's no oxygen in it, and nothing can live in it because the sulfur's got it into the water and oxidized, and basically sulfur rust has taken over the streams. I won't keep going, but that's just one example of how this type of switchover from what our grandfathers did as coal miners to what our fathers did as coal miners destroyed so much of Pennsylvania. So when the same model was rolled out in West Virginia, we looked down and we said there's two differences. They're pulling out bituminous coal instead of anthracite. In other words, soft coal instead of hard coal. And instead of digging holes, they're just taking the top of the mountains off and everything's the damn same. And that's what it was. That's what this verse is. You have to know that to hear it. And you hear it when he says, the eagles soaring high, would he recognize this land? And the answer is no. Now the eagle's life is pretty short, but if we took an eagle from 50 years ago and time traveled him to the future and he flew over this land, no. No, he wouldn't recognize it and the scars and the damage and the pain. But see, the environmental pain, the environmental damage is only one part of that. This story is that story. It's also the story of the mining of people. That's what this story is, the mining of people. This is, this is a look 
into the, the actual reality of the oligarchy and corporatocracy that our nation has transformed into. When these companies do this, they, they know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly how much of that resource is there. And they know they don't even want all of it. Because mining coal is like pumping oil. There's a point at which the well's not worth running anymore. It's too hard to get what's left out. You take the easy, you leave the hard. And you go away and you do it somewhere else. It literally is what it sounds like. Strip mining. They changed the name to mountaintop removal as though that sounded better. It's still strip mining. You strip that which you want from the land and you leave behind the pain. Great, huh? Well, what you do also, though, is you need the buy-in of the people that live there. So you go promise them an honest stage wages, good benefits, good opportunity that will build up their whole community. And they all buy into it. And you know what? It works. Blue-collar jobs abound. And those jobs create other jobs, just like they tell you it will. Just like they tell you it will. Little stores start popping up. Little markets. All kinds of things start to grow up around the coal. But since it's all centric around the coal, when the coal's gone and the jobs fall in, the people have been just as strip-mined as the land. That's what this story is. That's what this story is. And there's a fact of the matter that this, this world needs energy. There's ways to do a lot of things better, and we should, but we need energy. Extracting coal and oil and gas are ways to get that done. But for the people that live in these towns throughout the Dakotas and all right now that are booming on the oil and gas boom, don't trust the people behind it. Because as soon as they are done with you, they will walk away and take everything of value that they brought with them. And you'll be left with an expanded population without the core on which you're building things. That doesn't mean you don't do it. It means you better start farming with the profits from marketing, from, from mining. And if you don't, when they leave, you'll have nothing left. And I don't just mean farming in the soil, though that would be a good way to do this. But I mean farming in building sustainable, ongoing businesses that do not require the oil companies to still be employing half the town. Because it's what's happening in West Virginia right now, and it's what happened in Pennsylvania many decades ago. And that's why when we look south to our fellow miners in West Virginia, we knew what they were in store for. It's an amazing song. Absolutely amazing song. If you want to hear the rest of it, you can go to Andrew McKnight's website, which is at andrewmcknight.net, and you'll see under music, you'll see a place where there's a couple songs you can download for free just by giving them your email address. I'll put a link to that page in show, the show notes today, and uh, you can download the full MP3 of that song and continue to dissect the poetry for yourself. He has a lot of great music there. You can pretty much listen to everything before you decide to buy it. Check it out today again, andrewmcknight.net. Uh, don't let it prevent you from maybe picking up some of his stuff right away, but I am uh, going to probably be this week hearing from Andrew to set up a discount code for MSB members, get you guys like 10 or 15% off on his music. I'm so impressed with this guy's music and just the kind of guy he is. If I had the time and the logistics that made it possible, I'd have him playing in November here at our event that I'll talk about more in a bit. Uh, but we're already talking about for doing one spring event here at the TSP Homestead, bringing him in to do that and trying to make it work out. Anyway, with that, that's enough on that. Let's talk about something 
even more uh, dramatic than, you know, destroying land in the name of progress, and that is Ebola. Jack was wrong. Yes, yes, Jack was wrong. He has to have been wrong. How can Jack not be wrong? Jack said not to worry about Ebola. Did this You know, this thing with this guy that in Dallas that got Ebola by going to Liberia and working with a dying Ebola person without protection and coming here would not turn into a rapidly spreading Ebola. And now a nurse that cared for this man is sick with Ebola and it's possible that her boyfriend has Ebola too. I... The level of ignorance being used with the reporting of this, both in mainstream and alternative media, is so excessive. And government officials doing things like blaming this nurse, uh, saying it's her fault that she got infected, etc., is, is just nonsense. Let me first start off with this lady that has Ebola, because I'm going to say some things to basically say, don't worry about this. I want to make sure you understand right up front, I'm not saying don't worry about the people. Uh, my heart goes out to this woman, and if her boyfriend has it too, uh, my heart goes out to him. The good news is there actually is a, I wouldn't really call it a treatment, but a protocol to try to help Ebola patients survive. Uh, maybe you would call it treatment. It's certainly not a cure, and it's not a guarantee, and it's not a drug. But the most beneficial thing they've actually found so far for a person with Ebola is to take blood from a survivor and give the infected person a transfusion of the other person's blood. And the doctor that made it with the experimental treatments uh, in Atlanta that came back from Liberia that had been treating people over there has donated plasma for that purpose. They may be tapping him for more if he's got it in him because now they've got her boyfriend showing symptoms that could be Ebola. They could also be symptoms that could be the flu because early symptoms are you know, typical shit and it gets worse. So, how does a person wearing all this protective gear get Ebola? Well, once you get done doing what you're doing, you have to take it off. And any breach in protocol or failure of equipment during that procedure can result in an infection. That's how she would get Ebola. It's not that she went in there in the protective gear and Ebola got through, most likely. It's more likely that she got something on her and somehow was infected during breaking that gear down and taking it off. And the question is, do the people in Dallas treating these people even have the proper training for the protocols necessary? Do they have the right equipment for a disease like this? And the answer is probably no, but I'm not going to say it's no because I don't know. I don't say shit when I don't know shit, right? I'll give you my opinion, my thoughts. I'll even make predictions, but I'm not going to say no, they don't when I, I don't know. So was it in any way this, this woman's fault that she got infected? Well, I don't know that we need to have that discussion right now, except that people have already opened it, so let's have that discussion. Let's assume that she, in fact, did something incorrect when taking her gear off. Okay, Let's assume that did happen. So does that mean it's her fault? Still not necessarily. Did she do as she was trained? If she wasn't trained properly, then the fault is those who trained her trained her improperly, and it's only their fault if they were trained properly and screwed it up. There's definite procedures needed here, there's probably a need to upgrade the equipment that's being used. That's flat out. Now, so let's just understand that. The way this lady probably got infected was during treatment being exposed upon disrobing of all the protective gear. Her boyfriend, okay, Ebola spreads through the exchange of bodily fluids. 
her boyfriend. We don't need to say anything else to understand how that would happen. Okay, We're done there. Uh, I do cuss occasionally, but I try not to make the show go down places that, that parents wouldn't want their children to hear. You explain it to your kids however you want, but when two people get close together, uh, that can happen. So even with her being just mildly symptomatic, it's completely reasonable that the disease could be transmitted from her to him. Now, in the conspiracy communities, oh, I told you, it's, I told you it's coming to America. I told you it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be everywhere. Ah, oh, they're going to vaccinate you. It's actually going to infect you. Okay, all that crap. And it must be airborne. I mean, how else will all this protective gear and all? All right, I, I've tried to think of the best analogy I could to help you understand how a healthcare worker taking precautions that are beyond what's necessary in dealing with a, a, a patient that has Ebola that is just in the initial stages ends up infected. And it's because of how the virus multiplies and how the expulsion of, uh, of fluids increases with hemorrhagic fever. Uh, instead of using hemorrhage, let's use the word that most people are familiar with, bleed. The hemorrhage means to bleed. So that actually means bleeding fever, bleeding internally and externally. Also, when you are having high fevers and dying from Ebola, you tend to bleed through uh, internal capillaries, etc., but that will be blood coming out of your nose, your eyes, your mouth, and your ears. You literally bleed to death while having these fevers and shivers, okay? and mucus, and sweat. And all of those fluids can contain Ebola viruses. A person who is just having the mild initial flu-like symptoms has a population of virus in their body that is relatively low to the total blood fluids, etc. If you were directly exposed to it, yes, it could transmit, but indirectly it may not. All right? As that disease progresses, the amount of fluid potential to be exposed to goes up And the virulency, or the population, I should say, of the virus per droplet goes up. And the patient literally is becoming more contagious by the minute, by the hour, definitely. But at some point, even by the minute, they're actually becoming more and more potentially contagious. So it stands to reason that even with precautions, a courageous doctor, nurse, etc., that tries to treat that person when they're at the stage where they're either going to turn the corner and die or turn the corner and make it, is at a higher risk, even in donned in gear, than you are with a patient who is mildly symptomatic across the room from you. It's just the nature of the beast. Here's the analogy that I have to help you understand this. Imagine I have a 400-gallon water tank, okay? And into that tank, I dump a bacteria or virus that can make you sick. Whether it's lethal or not, doesn't even matter. Just it can make you sick. Could be salmonella, could be uh, Girardia, could be anything, right? I dump that bacteria in. About, oh, I don't know, um, a solution of the size of a shot glass, like a shot glass of whiskey. I dump it in and we stir the tank up. I then fill up a 16-ounce water bottle full of this water, And I give it to you to drink. The odds that you're going to get sick are pretty high. You may, you may get lucky, okay? But the odds are pretty high. If you stuck your hand in that water, wiped your face with it, I wouldn't advise this, but if you did, 
got a droplet or two in your, you know, your mouth or whatever, or even stuck your finger in there and licked it, uh, the odds that you're going to get sick are very low. Right? Certainly if you stuck your hand in there, maybe brushed it through your hair, and then cleaned yourself off, the odds you're going to get sick are infinitesimally low. Either way, you've been exposed to the water, okay? But you haven't taken 16 ounces of it internally. And at this point, the bacteria concentrate in that water is low. Now, this is not apples to apples, but it's like peaches and nectarines, all right? It's pretty close, if you'll just take it to understand. Now, let's say in that water are conditions where that bacteria that I've added, that virus that I've added, can multiply. It's not just pure water. It's got some nutrient in it. It's got whatever it needs for Cliptosporidium or Girardia or Seminella, whatever, to multiply. If you come back two days later and drink a cup of that water, you're going to get sick. Like, you're not, you might, you're go, unless you're somehow immune to whatever it is, you're going to get sick. If you now dip your hands in the water and lick your hands, right, a little bit, you might get sick. You're still at a point where if you just touched the water, maybe you touched your face, you got a little bit in the, 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 the tip of your mouth or whatever, or uh, in a cut or something, you could, but you still might not. Just don't know. Not a good practice, but it's a lot less likely. But if you put your hands in the water, washed your hands in the water, had a few little nicks and cuts on your hands and stuff like that, and then, and then washed your hands properly, you're probably not getting sick. Okay? Now, some of the things that we might put in that water, you, you wouldn't get sick if you had cuts on your hands. It can't get in that way. You need to ingest it, right? But assuming it's something that can get in somehow, you still might not get sick. If that water sits and festers for two weeks, and if there is the ability for whatever's in it to infect you through a small cut on your hand, and you soak your hand in that water, you're probably sick. Whereas the same thing, the first day, you probably weren't sick. As the population of whatever the pathogen increases, the amount of exposure necessary for you to contract whatever the pathogen does, right, is, is, it goes down. So we go from needing a cup of water to get sick, to get enough of the organisms in your body repeat, replicating at a level that your body can't fight off and deal with, to needing a single drop of fluid in the right place and you're sick. So you go from being something that I'd have to drink the water, to I went out and, and didn't wash my hands, I touched food, I ate the food, and now I'm sick. And that's all about the population and the virulency of what's in there. This is why these healthcare workers get sick in spite of protection. Because they're dealing with the pond after two weeks of festering. So they're dealing with a patient bleeding to death. If we were cold-hearted, sick bastards, and we wanted to prevent the spread of Ebola, We would isolate these people, treat them through robotics or something like that in a room. And at the point that we knew the person probably wasn't going to make it, we'd turn on a gas and euthanize them. And then the room would be such that it could be set, become an incinerator and would incinerate everybody and everything in that room. And then we'd bring the next guy in and see if he makes it. We shouldn't do that. I'm saying that would be the best way. That after a person gets to a certain point, they just don't get direct contact with human beings anymore, ever. Because that's how lethal this is at that stage. And that's how easy it is to spread when the person's that sick. 
Again, what prevents Ebola from being a rapidly spreading virus? A person that's sick isn't going anywhere. That, that's, that's the fundamental, that's what limits this. A person that's that sick and that contagious isn't going anywhere. So, am I concerned? I'm concerned for people, but I'm more concerned about falling down the steps and killing myself than I am with getting personally infected with Ebola, and you should too, because the laws of mathematics say so. So don't be panicked about this, and here's exactly what I said the risk was. Oh, the nurse got it. Her boyfriend got it. What about the dog? Just keep doing it. Don't be deceived by this. There, and the people that say, well, I'm not willing to not worry about it at all. Okay, hold on a second. What are you going to do? What can you do? You can either shut yourself in a hole in your house and not leave, or you can do nothing. There's nothing you can do. There's no action you can take other than being prepared to quarantine if you have to. That's it. There's nothing else for you to do. You either go about your daily life or you don't. So if you're going to go about your daily life and worry about it because you think that's doing something for you, what a great way to disempower yourself. Good job. Keep it up. That's what you want. I don't have time to sit around and worry about this. I'm only discussing it because... With what I do for this show, it's an incumbent upon me to explain it to you so that you will understand that which no one is telling you. Could this become a bigger problem? Yes. Is it likely? Eh, probably not. Now, does that mean that we might not have, by the time it's all over with, 50 people infected in the United States or more before they figure out exactly how to handle this shit and take it a little bit more seriously? Oh, it could happen. And the problem isn't the people that die, except for them and their families and those that love them. Again, don't think I'm being heartless. But, you know, today, oh, over a hundred people will die on the highway, and I'm not going to alter my life about it. I'm not going to be like, oh, another one! I mean, you just can't live that way. That's how you have to see this. It's the only way you can see this and have your life not derailed by it. So I do feel for those people it's a problem. But in the totality of the functioning of your life, my life, and the country's existence, no, it's not a big problem. If this country can't have, have 50 people die, we're screwed because we have more than that every day. Just from accidents. So, no, it's not a massive problem. Like It's not like we're not going to be able to have enough people to, 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 to farm the fields like the Black Death. No. But... When people start panicking and freaking out about it, the economic consequences and the supply and demand consequences can be pretty bad. So we do have to pay attention to what the people are doing that are overreacting to it. But I saw a great picture recently. It was a fat guy, you know, drinking GMO soda, eating a big old burger, playing video games, you know, and all these things that are wrong in his life, and he's freaked out about Ebola. That, that is the way to look at this. Anyway, let's uh, move on to something else. Also, a little bit of a problem, but not that big of one. Still a good thing overall. All right, so I'm going to Madison, Wisconsin. Actually, uh, I'm flying into Madison, Wisconsin, and then I'm uh, driving up uh, to see Mark Shepard and uh, E.J. Callahan. Uh, and kind of a thank you for us backing their Kickstarter. Charlie Mitchell from Permit Ethos, and uh, hopefully John Shimada and Jesse Tegmeyer will be coming with Charlie to see Mark's operation, learn all they can for it, so we can emulate a lot of it back on our property uh, in West Virginia. 
And the, the, what happened was, the reason I made the trip so long, because we're basically on the farm um, on Friday the 24th. I was going to be there just myself and Dorothy to do some video with EJ. And the 25th, we have Mark and everybody coming in, and they're going to have a little little party for us and all. Uh, see everything and, and bring in some guys to you know from from Perma Ethos, John and uh, uh, Jesse, hopefully with with Charlie to learn about the farm. And so if I was going to go alone, I would originally fly in like you know Thursday night and probably home Sunday, so as little time away as possible. But you know the life of a podcaster's wife is not an easy one. It almost sounds like a song, a country song. Um, but I thought, well, Madison is kind of this yuppie-ish town, and, and Dorothy could go to shops and boutiques and stuff. So here we get there Wednesday, and we're there pretty early, so I have almost you know, a half-day Wednesday once we're in our hotel uh, that we just go out in, in Madison and do whatever. A whole day Thursday that you could do whatever the hell she wanted with, and a whole day Sunday. And I would be a good husband and just do whatever the wife wanted uh, on those two days. So now I have those two days with nothing but myself. Unless option two can happen, which I don't think it can. I'll tell you what I think option two is uh, in a bit. But my thought is, so I'm going to fly into Madison. It's about a two-hour drive up to um, to Mark's place, uh, to the northeast, to a town called Viola, uh, or Viola, something like that. And maybe there would be a TSP listener or two in the area that has like their own little permaculture thing going on, and I could stop by and, and video your place. And if somebody wanted to, and frankly, wanted to sleep in a not-so-great hotel on the floor, uh, you could come to Mark's place with me. Uh, so it'd be somebody kind of located between Madison and, and Viola uh, that would want to do part or both of those things, one or both of those things. I uh, could definitely come by, have a beer with you, and, 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 and talk to you and, and see your place, maybe give you some free consulting, or maybe get some cool video uh, to show members of the audience what a, what a listener's doing. If somebody happens to be in that area, uh, or... If you wanted to make a weekend of it, you could come with me and, again, sleep on the floor in my room. I'd give you that space if you wanted to, or get your own. It'd be up to you, but if you, if you use the floor space, you're going to listen to a, a guy snore pretty hard. Uh, that would be one option. Uh, and then I'd, I'd, I'd drop you off uh, probably Sunday morning at your place and go on and figure out something else to do with myself. Uh, that would give me, uh, though, all day Sunday to maybe hook up with somebody else. Maybe we do a meetup near Madison uh, Sunday evening. Uh, it's not a, a wife vacation anymore. So that's I'd be interested from peer, hearing from people that might want to participate in something like that with me. I'm sure Mark wouldn't mind if I brought somebody else, though. Uh, none of you will measure up to my wife. That's just the way that it is. Um, the other option would be, and this almost has to be somebody we know. I mean, in fact, it has to be somebody we know. I can't do this with somebody unless I know them, and I know the odds are long on this. But the other option would be if someone would basically come caretake my place from uh, Wednesday the 22nd, until Monday, the 27th. Uh, basically, we'd give you the place to stay. You'd stay here. And it's not that a person couldn't work, but, I mean, this is a lot of taking care of the dogs, the birds, everything. Uh, so you have to be a person that would pretty much live here. Um, and I, I know that's short notice, but I'd actually be willing to do it with somebody if I already know you. And that, that's the only way I could. So somebody local, the Fort Worth, Dallas area that wanted to, to do that for us, you know, and we even pay you for it. Uh, but that way, Dorothy could still go because the folks that were coming and that were going to be here to do that for me are just not going to be able to make it till the next week. Um, and their their problem is much bigger than mine, much bigger than mine. And uh, so... Uh, it's not that the, it just, it just is what it is. 
Uh, I'm thinking the first option I gave of maybe meeting somebody up there that wants to go with me and act as my cameraman uh, and get to go to Mark Shepard's place is probably the more likely one to happen. And I freaking owe Dorothy big now. She deserves a good wife vacation. I'll figure out how to make one happen. So that's that's not a great thing, but it's a good opportunity for somebody out there. And so somebody lives up in that area, and uh, I, I really can't go way out of my way. Uh, so somewhere in that area between Viola and, and, and Madison, or if you're willing to meet me there, that would work too. Um, anyway, and again, I offer, uh, assuming I don't get a caretaker, floor space in my room uh, for Friday and Saturday when we're up in uh, Viola. The uh, best hotel we could find is not five-star accommodations by any means, but it seems like a decent place. Or get your own room or sleep in a tent or do whatever you want. But uh, I'd, I'd pick you up at your place so you could meet me up there. be up to you. Uh, and I really could use a cameraman for this because I was planning on talking to EJ, being mic'd up. Um, it's hard to do by yourself. So that would be a great opportunity for somebody. Now, speaking of opportunities, um, I had a few more people sign up for the workshop while I was gone. I think two more. Uh, but I just checked the inventory in PayPal, and we have two seats left for the November event. Technically, we capped it at 28, and we're sold out because we've sold the 28. But I added two more because usually there's a person or two that cancels. And let's face it, Jack's Homestead is not an airplane. And if everybody that books shows up, and I've oversold the flight, so to speak, no one gets bumped. So while I wanted an event with 28, I figured I'll book 30, and if some people drop, some people drop. And that would be a good way to do things. So it's there. There's two seats still available. I'd love to see you come if uh, if you haven't been here yet for an event. Uh, or if you're an alum that wants to come back to another one, I'd love to see you come. Our events are amazing. They're, they're really, really amazing. People form lifelong friendships at them. You'll be part of the secret club. You'll even know what talk to the squirrel means. So this is funny. When I was in uh, Perma Ethos event for the fall, I had some people say, well, we've come to an event. Do we get to know what talk to the squirrel means? And I said, no, you don't. They said, well, why? We came to an event. I said, you didn't come to a, you went to the Perma Ethos event. Talk to the squirrel is reserved for people that come to my homestead. If I did a Perma Ethos event here that wasn't just a TSP event, I'd probably tell you. But it's for people to come here, and there's a reason. Uh, that group of people was promised that they had this close-knit group, and they would always have a way to identify each other. And that was just a weird, funky way that we came up. So if you want to know what Talk to the Squirrel means to be part of the Super Secret Squirrel Club, come on down here. I'm, I'm going to tell you that you might be like, oh, that's what it means. Like, it's not really a big deal. But you will know the secret. We have amazing food. Uh, I'm going to probably have to go out today and pick up some more ground pork uh, because I need to make a bunch more breakfast sausage. No Jimmy Dean this time. This is Jack's handmade pork sausage. We have a great staff that takes care of people. It's going to be an incredible event. Nick Ferguson is coming in. We're going to teach you guys about plant propagation. We're going to set up a misting box so you can see how to do that. Um, it's going to be a great event. So there are two left. Love to have you here if you can make it. If you fill out the form, and you click the button to pay at PayPal, and you get a page that says it's sold out. It's not a mistake. It's sold out. If that happens and you want to be on a waiting list, you can. Just send me an email, waiting list uh, in the subject line, and just tell me who you are, and I'll let you know if we have a cancellation that you can pick up because it is a hard cap at 30 registered students. And remember, um, Gary Collins is going to be at this event, and so is uh, Council Member uh, John Pugliano. So it will be a lot of fun. And uh, you'll get to learn more than just 
planting food forests and designing food forests and, and plant propagation. Uh, you get to learn about investing in health as well from those two guys. And uh, it looks like Neil Franklin will be here at least for Saturday evening. Uh, Neil Franklin is my old business partner that I founded Franklin Spearco Media with. Uh, you get to meet him and talk to him. And uh, Saturday night we'll be showing you the video for the new project Gen Forward before anybody else gets to see it, which will be part of an Indiegogo campaign to be launched on Monday uh, following that weekend. So it is going to be probably one of the coolest things we've ever done. And uh, a lot of times people get me to punch them because uh, they want to feel what a Sistema punch is like. I don't really like to do that, especially because it usually happens in the evening when I've imbibed a bit. And uh, sometimes I get baited into hitting people harder than I wanted to. And the next thing I know, somebody's posting a picture of a bruise on Facebook, which, by the way, means I did it wrong. Uh, and I probably hurt them, and I don't like to do that. So, uh, John Dowie. And uh, anyway, uh, you, you can get Neil to hit you if you want on Saturday night. He's, frankly, a lot better at it than I am. And I'm sure it won't take much to entice him into doing a little bit of a impromptu Sistema uh, seminar. And he is a lot better qualified as an instructor than I am. But uh, if you ask for it and you get it, just remember you asked for it and you got it. Moving on to something totally different. I also have another little project going on. Um, I suggested this on the blog. Nobody did it, so I decided to do it for myself. I have a new website. Uh, this is something that I'm dedicating about five minutes a day, three or four days a week to. And uh, frankly, due to the level of content that's available to me for it, uh, that's all that it takes. And the website is called schoolstupidity.com. <laughs> The fact is, it's really not funny. It's nothing to joke about. The level of stupidity in our school system is growing daily. Um, about five times a week, I get a story of a school doing something stupid. You can help me with this. Uh, when you send me an email from now on that's specifically about school stupidity, I may still cover it on the Survival Podcast, but I'll definitely cover it on schoolstupidity.com if it's a, a good story and I haven't covered it already. And uh, I'll give you an example of the type of story that I'm covering on SchoolStupidity.com. Today's story that's on SchoolStupidity.com is five-year-old forced to sign anti-suicide, anti-homicide contract after drawing a gun. Let me read that to you again. Five-year-old, five-year-old girl, by the way, forced to sign anti-suicide, anti-homicide contract after drawing a gun. Uh, yeah, this is... This is real. And here's how I'm posting this. I'm giving my opinion in a few words. And then a, a, an outtake, a little snippet from the story, wherever it's sourced at, and a link to the rest of it where the source comes from so nobody sues me. Editor's opinion. While the past record might make it seem impossible, it does appear that the intelligence of the school administrators is actually continuing to degrade, possibly by the day, maybe even by the hour. While people are focused right now on the Ebola alert for a disease less likely to kill you than, say, being eaten by a shark, perhaps we should instead focus on a true epidemic. Of course, I'm referring to the epidemic of rapidly spreading, growing, and expanding stupidity among people running our schools. Personally, if this was my child, I would sue the shit out of the school district for two things. One, traumatizing my child for something that was clearly not a threat or any danger to anyone. Two, requiring my child to sign an unenforceable and illegal contract, specifically as a minor, with no informing of the child's garden, guardian. So here you go, the latest proof that de-evolution is just as possible as evolution. 
Mobile, Alabama. An Alabama mother is furious that her five-year-old daughter was forced to sign a school contract stating she wouldn't kill herself or anyone else in school. School officials told Rebecca, who did not want to give her last name, that they had to send the five-year-old Elizabeth home after an incident in class. They told me she drew something that resembled a gun, according to them, pointed a crayon at another student, and went pew-pew. So they drug this girl into an office. Her mother then ends up in a lobby waiting on her. And without her mother's consent, they made the child sign a contract agreeing not to kill herself or anyone else. Worded as anti-suicide, anti-homicide. Do you think a five-year-old knows what the word freaking homicide means? I'll tell you what. If this is what, if this was my child, the school district in question might come really close to knowing what having your ass kicked mean, but I'll tell you what, they probably wouldn't, because I'm a reasonable man, and they would find out what lawsuit up the ass means. That's what they would find out. But I'm not going to snap out. I'm going to say, this is one more reason to bring your kids out of the public school system. If there is any way possible that you can do that, These people are too stupid to be entrusted with the privilege of educating your children. Please remember, ladies and gentlemen, that the education of your, your children is a privilege extended to those who are paid with our money that is taken from us forcibly by the government to pay their salaries, give them three months a year off, then be told they're heroes and told that they're underpaid and believe the whole thing. This is bullshit, and here you go. Now, the reason for schoolstupidity.com, it has become obvious to me that I will never run out of material for schoolstupidity.com, and should I, the site has served its purpose well, because we've driven the stupidity away by exposing light on it. I'm a big believer that the best way to fight stupidity, ignorance, tyranny, oppression, keep the list going as long as you want with the adjectives of your choice, is to merely shine a light upon it. Now, while a lot of these stories are circled around on Facebook and things like that, what happens is a person sees this story, they're sitting in Los Angeles, and the story's about Mobile, Alabama, and they go, stupid Bible thumpers, right? That's what they think. That's what they think. Don't get mad at me. That's what they think. Now, somebody sitting out in Alabama reads a story of equal stupidity, like a kid trying to sh uh, share a burrito out in California and getting suspended for sharing a burrito with a hungry friend, and they think, huh, stupid hippies, right? Maybe it's the other way around. I'm doing the wrong accent, right? So the, the, the person in California thinks, dude, stupid rednecks out there, man. We don't do that. And the person in Alabama thinks, stupid hippies, right? And they're both right. But it's not the hippie. And it's not the redneck, it's the hippie or the redneck running the damn school with no brains. And don't be offended I said redneck, I'm a redneck. And don't be offended I said hippie, I'm a hippie. I'm a militant redneck hippie libertarian, that's what I am. I'm allowed to make fun of all of them because I'm part of all of them. But seriously, the level of ignorance here. But why school stupidity? Because my hope is when somebody sees this little thing, not only might they read the full story, leave a comment, something like that, but then they might click on home. And then they might look, here are the headlines. Now, I started this site, and I've been on vacation for five, well, not vacation, but call it working vacation for five days. The first story I have posted as of the 16th of September to create some time, but the reality is I posted the very first headline on this website on October 1st. It's now October 14th. 
Let me read you the headlines of the stories that I have posted on this site already. So again, while I post-dated a few of the initial posts to give the blog some time and, and kind of link them up with when they actually happened, these are all stories that have been sent to me by listeners, and I'll just again read the headlines only since October 1. The first one, student in military jacket prompts lockdown at Southington School. Number two, teachers union sues over being evaluated. Number three, 13-year-old gets detention for sharing his lunch with a friend at school. Number four, father says son suspended for standing up to a bully. Number five, seven-year-old punished at school for bringing souvenir shell casing to school. Number six, Bowton Hill School Board fires a long-time elementary teacher, Pam Arister. Um, yeah, real quick on that one. Uh, that was for, stand, the, the, for, for her sticking up for other kids that were bullied. The next one, student suspended for selling illicit full sugar Pepsi out of his locker. The next one after that, Washington School District deems swings dangerous. Next one, Marion County Board of Educators suspends two teachers over having a three-legged race with their students. And then five-year-old forced to sign anti-suicide, anti-homicide contract after drawing a gun. And again, this is drawing with a crayon, not drawing it from a holster like you would learn in a good self-defense class. All of this since October 1st. It's October 14th. The amount of it is stupefying. So the purpose of the site is to make a, pl a point. To have all of this in one place. So when like news people are investigating crap like this, they can realize how bad the problem is. Because I believe that I'll have no problem putting at least three stories a week on the site. It'll be easy because of you guys. And I'll do a little bit of looking for myself, and I'll see stuff on Facebook and in and social media and all, with all. But it'll be there. Now, if I just do three stories a week, which again, I don't, I, I think I might do four, but three a week for a year, it'll be 150 of them all in one place, so we can shine a light on this ignorance. Now, you know me, I'm into permaculture, so I'm into function stacking. So there's more functions here. So first of all, it's a, just a place to shine the light on this stupidity, right? And the fact that so much of it's there in one place really drives the point home. It's not just isolated stories that come up every week anymore. Now there's a history of the ignorance. And what a history we can build. You know, just a massive history of ignorance here. Now, the next thing is, it also is going to help me make a commitment to you happen. Which is, this stuff gets my blood pressure up. That's not good for me. And it makes me go into a jack rant. And I know some of you like jack rants, but they can get excessive. Because, well, uh, there's nothing that infuriates me more than stupidity. Uh, that, and there's one thing that is worse than stupidity. It's stupidity that victimizes our children, which is what this is. So it makes me want to blow a gasket. This is my outlet now. Because this is probably the one thing that makes me snap out... Uh, more than anything else, probably number two would be law enforcement officers abusing uh, their authority. But we already have sites to do this for that. So this is like my outlet. So back when I had TSP and I was still working and I would drive home and I had the garden as my outlet and I had TSP as my outlet, now, I all, now that I have those problems worked out because I'm all chill, when I see the stupidity in, in schools, now I have a place to put it out. So that's why it's there. Number three or four, I don't know how many functions we're into now. So many of you are out there trying to educate people about how bad our education system is, and they want to just believe. Again, you know, it's the, it's, it's those hippies in California, it's those rednecks in Massachusetts, or uh, Massachusetts rednecks. They do exist, believe it or not. Those rednecks in Alabama and Texas, whatever. Um, having a place to say, look, this isn't isolated. This isn't occasional. This is all over all of the time. It may help you wake some people up. So, 
I'd love your help with schoolstupidity.com. I don't even have a way to subscribe to post there yet unless you do it by RSS. I'll try to get that on there today. And start leaving me some comments. And uh, if you have another story, send it to me. And don't be afraid to, like, if you know something similar, put a comment in and say, hey, here it is. It's on moderate, so it'll have to be when I approve your comment or whatever. Uh, I don't know if this site will ever be anything more than it is right now. Just a simple record of the stupidity that's going on out there. Uh, but somebody has to shine a light on it, and that's what I try to do is shed a light on the things that are really good and the things that are really bad, and in this case, the sheer stupidity of government-run education in 2014. With that, I think that's enough for a show just back. As you can tell, my voice is a little bit strained. Uh, I hope you're excited about all the things that we're doing in the TSP community. Permaethos, Gen Ford is coming, AgriTruth slowly building, school, school stupidity, that's an easy one. That's a layup because, well, they make it easy for me. Uh, we have a lot of great stuff coming. We have a lot of great stuff to do. I'll be back tomorrow with another great show. I hope you enjoyed today's show. hope you have a great day. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.